this last week in the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list for nonfiction. The number one entry was entitled The Last Lecture. Apparently, it is the custom of some colleges to select a professor from the faculty and invite that man, that woman, to spend an hour sharing from the heart those lessons that he or she has learned matter most. Randy Posh was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University when the president of that university came to him and said, Randy, would you give a last lecture? Neither he nor the president knew when he accepted that invitation that in just a few weeks he would be told he would have between three and six months to live. Posh wrote, I learned I was dying of pancreatic cancer. I knew I could cancel. I have three young children. I'm married to Jai, the woman of my dreams, and there were so many things to be done. But by speaking, I knew I could put myself in a bottle that would one day wash upon the beach for my children, Dylan and Logan and Chloe. The 76-minute lecture was taped. It was placed on YouTube, and as of last week, it has been viewed 7,840,276 times. Posh expanded that lecture, and it has become today's bestseller, The Last Lecture. Through his suffering, he maintained an online journal. The final entry was posted by an anonymous friend, July 25, 2008. Randy died this morning of complications from pancreatic cancer. He was 47 years old. Now look, I understand. Not everybody dies of pancreatic cancer. But what has become clear to me as I grow older is that everybody, and I mean everybody, suffers sometime along the way. In fact, suffers many times along the way. And what dawns on you when you read the book of Acts, which is our theme book for this series, Primetime, is that even the friends of Jesus suffer. In fact, truth in advertising, especially the friends of Jesus suffer. Which is why I wish... What's up, Dr. Luke? Why did you put that one measly little line in? You could have left it out, but oh no, you stuck it in. And because he did, you who are the primetime generation, and I'm thinking especially of you, you have been given a slice of truth that I hope you will never forget. Open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Acts. Book of Acts. Chapter 14, if you didn't bring a Bible, you, got, you, you need to read this one-liner for yourself. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Acts chapter 14. I'll be in the Today's New International Version. Take the pew Bible. That's the New King James. It works. Page 745 in the pew Bible. Follow along. Just one line. We need to run up to that line, so let's pick it up in verse 21. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. It says, They preached the gospel. That would be Paul and Barnabas. Tusum, 
partnership. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And this sentence is attributed to them. Here it comes. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Can you believe it? Write it down. Will you real quick? Write it down right now. Grab that study guide that's in your worship bulletin today. Pull it out and jot that sentence down. And while you're doing it, I want to say to those of you watching right now, I'd love for you to have the same study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you. Our website, www.pmchurch.tv. You've got to get this line. Jot it down so you can brood over it as well. You're looking for the series Primetime. This is the next to the last in that series Primetime. By the way, don't miss the final installment. It was the nighttime before Primetime and all through the world. That's our last one coming up. But this one's entitled, Nobody Said It Was Going to Be Easy. So that's what you're looking for. When you see Nobody Said It's Going to Be Easy, it says Study Guide there. You click on, you'll have the same study guide. All right, fill it in. Write in the reference. You're going to need to do that. Acts 14.22. Jot that down. We must go through many hardships, many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I.e., nobody said it was going to be easy. Actually, we shouldn't be too hard on Paul and Barnabas or on Dr. Luke for including this one-liner simply because truth be known. It's the perfect summation for the narratives that have just taken place. Six stories. Keep your pen moving. Can't tell the stories, but I want you to note the stories that lead to this punchline. Story number one. You see it in your study guide. That's Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. It's a story about being on the island of Cyprus. They're trying to reach the Roman proconsul. That would be the governor, Sergio Paulus. He has a counselor, a sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. And the powers of darkness are at work. And Bar-Jesus keeps trying to turn... The governor away from what Paul is teaching until finally Paul, in exasperation, strikes the sorcerer blind for a season. Not for life, but for a season. Write that down. He had to strike him blind. Crisis right at the beginning. Story number two. Keep your pen moving. Acts 13, 13. The primetime mission got so tough so quickly that young adult John Mark... He's in his late 20s or early 30s. We've calculated the age. Young adult John Mark... Quit the mission for Jesus. Just up and quit. Story number two. Story number three. Acts 13, verses 14 to 45. The Jews in Pisidian Antioch, direct quote out of the TNIV, heaped abuse. Heaped abuse on Paul after his sermon in the synagogue. Heaped abuse. Story number four. Acts 13, verses 46 through 52. The Jewish leaders then stirred up persecution. Write it in. Stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from that region. Story number five, Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Jewish antagonists in Iconium hatched a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they got wind, got a whiff of the plot afoot and fled the town before they could be stoned. Story number six. This time they didn't get out quick enough. Story number six, Acts 14, verses 8 to 20. But in Lystra... The crowd thinks Paul and Barnabas are gods because they've just healed a lame man. And so the crowd immediately begins to offer animal sacrifices to the two men. Both men desperately seek to halt the affair. The Jews from the previous cities arrive at that very moment and persuade the crowd to actually go ahead and stone, write it in, stone Paul. In fact, that story is so dramatic. I need to read the two lines before what we just read. Your Bible's already open to uh, Acts 14. 
Go back up to verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over and they stoned Paul. Never been stoned in my life, have you? And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. The body is comatose. It doesn't even look like he's breathing. He's gone. But watch this. But after the disciples gathered around the broken body, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. You can't believe it. You just can't believe it. Six events of obvious suffering and tribulation. Paul and Barnabas, as they revisit the new churches after those six events, it's no wonder they've adopted this maxim. And they teach the truth. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Nobody said it was going to be easy. You wonder why that is? Me too. I'll tell you what. Why does God allow His friends who are working hard for Him, which is what He's called you to do for Him, why does God allow His friends who are working hard for Him, seeking to witness to their friends, witness to the family, witness to my colleagues, witness to the neighbors, why, when they're on mission for Jesus, does God allow hardships to take place? I wasn't with you last Sabbath, out on the West Coast for the memorial service of a very dear friend of mine, a worker for Jesus, just like you've been called to be. Why? Why is it the maxim of the kingdom we must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God? I've been brooding on that, obviously now, for a bunch of days. I'm coming up with two plausible reasons. I want to run them by you. See if you agree with these two. Reason number one, jot it down. It's the truth of the pearls. I was born in Japan. One of the greatest nations on earth for culturing pearls. I know a little bit, as a consequence, about her, how pearls are formed. Let me put a pearl on the screen for you. Take a look at this beautiful, beautiful pearl that we found online. Let me tell you about that pearl. Leave it on the screen. A natural pearl begins in the moist heart of an oyster when a foreign object that doesn't belong falls into that oyster. It can be a broken part of the shell. It can be, it can be a parasite. It can be cultured by a grain of sand, but when that moist body of the oyster receives it, it immediately reacts. This does not belong here, and it begins to secrete what is called the saker. As it secretes this, 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 this slimy substance, it's endeavoring to isolate the irritant from the rest of the organism. The longer the organism stays within the oyster, the more that substance gets secreted. Now, this substance consists, by the way, of microscopic crystals of calcium carbonate. They just keep building. The longer it's there, it just keeps building it. Over time, a ball develops. A ball, by the way, where these microscopic crystals of carbonate are aligned perfectly with one another so that the light passing along the axis of one crystal is reflected and refracted by another to produce a rainbow of light and glory. The pearl... The pearl is born that way. Would you jot it down? As long as there is an irritant that interrupts the normal flow of life in the creature, the process of transforming that foreign object into a stunning creation of beauty goes on and on and on. Are you getting any parallels? Are you catching anything here? You have to have the irritant in order to get the pearl. In fact, jot it down, the more suffering, quote unquote, the more suffering, the greater the beauty. Isn't that something? 
from that classic on the Sermon on the Mount entitled Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Would you, would you jot this down, please? The trials of life. Write it in. The trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities and roughness from our character. Their hewing, their squaring, their chiseling, their burnishing and polishing is a painful process. But the pearl, now I switched the word, it says stone, but I put pearl in. But the pearl is brought forth, prepared to fill its place in the heavenly temple. Upon no useless material does the Master bestow such careful, thorough work. Only His precious pearls are polished after the similitude of a palace. Do you suppose that's why Paul's point is true? We have to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Nobody said it was going to be easy. It's the lesson of the pearls. Number two, write it down, please. It's also the truth of the powers. You say, what powers? And let me tell you something. The powers that surround every young disciple, or not so young disciple, who steps out to become a prime time witness for Christ. The moment you accept Jesus and you say, I'm going to live in radical witness for my Savior, in that instant, the opposing powers are marshaled to mute you, shut you up, or discourage you, shut you down. We're in a war. John Mark is a classic example Young adult John Mark who looked at what was coming and said, I am out of here. And he quit. In fact, just turn the page back to uh, verse 13 of chapter 13. Just turn one page back to Acts 13, 13. So they leave us. They leave Cyprus from Paphos. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Acts of the Apostles, commenting on why Mark cuts and runs these words. It was here that Mark, overwhelmed with fear and discouragement, wavered for a time in his purpose to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Unused to hardships, he was disheartened by the perils and privations of the way. He had labored with success under favorable circumstances, but now amidst the opposition and perils that so often beset the pioneer worker, he failed to endure hardness as a good soldier of the cross. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no way to paper it over. This is a major crash and burn. This is total failure. John Mark melted down, could not stand the heat, and got out of the kitchen. Sometime later, the end of chapter 15, you'd find this. Sometime later, Paul says, hey, Barnabas. You know what? We've got to go back and visit these churches we planted together. And Barnabas says, great idea, Paul. How about if I bring my cousin again? Because John Mark was the young cousin of Barnabas. How about if I bring my cousin Mark again? Paul looked at him and said, you've got to be crazy. You're not bringing that boy with us. No, 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 no. At the end of verse, uh, chapter 15 of Acts, they enter into a sharp dispute. And finally, it got so bad that Barnabas says, I'll tell you what. If you're not going to let me and Mark come, we're out of here. And Paul says, adios. And Barnabas and his cousin Mark go back to Cyprus because you've got to go back to where you need to learn your lesson. And Paul says, I've got to find somebody. He gets a hold of a man named Silas. And guess what? God gets a two for one out of that deal. By the way, make note, just because you're a friend of Jesus doesn't mean you agree with all his friends. And a university community knows that very well. 
By the way, and by the way, John Mark grew from that meltdown. Because when he went back to Jerusalem, his mother was Mary. The upper room was owned by her. Last Supper was all there. When John Mark goes back, there's another big man. He says, I want that boy. And Peter took John Mark under his wing and began to nurture him. And in fact, scholars believe that John Mark, who obviously came out of that meltdown, became the great evangelist who wrote the very first gospel. We're convinced Mark was the first of the four gospels to be written. Scholars believe you really should call that the gospel according to St. Peter. It's Peter's story as recorded by Mark. John Mark recovered from that meltdown. Good news for all of us who have melted down in fear when we were about our Father's business. Good news. God will take you back again and again. In fact, here's, by the way, number two, he re-wins Paul's heart. And in Philemon 23, Paul says, hey, I want to tell you about my co-worker, Mark. And in his last will and testament, 2 Timothy, just before Paul dies, Paul begs Timothy, Timothy, bring Mark with you because, I'm quoting now, he is helpful to me in my ministry. You can crash and burn and learn and get it back up. Hallelujah. By the way, John Mark, tradition tells us, went on to be the head of the church in Alexandria. Finally, the city rose up to, to slay him. To martyr John Mark, they dragged him through the streets of Alexandria till he was dead. We must enter the kingdom of God through many hardships. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Don't you, don't you cut and run now. Nobody said it was going to be easy. It's the truth. And the lesson of the pearls is the truth. And the lesson of the powers, let me... One more line from Mount of Blessing. Jot this down. Principalities and powers and wicked spirits in high places are arrayed against all, all, all. We're in a war. All who yield obedience to the law of heaven. What's the law of heaven? Share the good news with everyone you can. Therefore, because of this opposition, so far from causing grief... Opposition should bring joy, write it down, should bring joy to the disciples of Christ. Why should I have joy over hardship? Ah, because it is evidence that you are following in the steps of your master. When you're under hardship, in mission for Christ, trouble start, it's because somebody knows you're on beam for the Savior. Don't you back down then. You must go through that hardship. Hang in there. Stay with it. It's a sign you're exactly where God needs you to be. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Besides, didn't Jesus promise us? Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end. I want to end the story that illustrates the truth that He is with us to the very end. I found the story two months ago in the newspaper. You can understand why it would catch my eye. It's a story about a pastor. Caldwell, Idaho, six foot six. Pastor of the Boone Memorial Presbyterian Church, July 30, goes striding into the Wyoming wilderness, capping the end of a three-month sabbatical. He says, listen, I need a 10-day, 60-mile solo hike across the Continental Divide. Then with the whole family will come in, we'll have a grand camping trip to wrap it all up. And so on July 30, with his lab mix named Andy, Turner and his dog started their adventure hiking into the Bridger Teton National Forest. He keeps a journal. August 2. 
the fourth day of his journey. Turner was traversing a field of boulders along a mountain lake more than 11,000 feet high and 16 miles from the nearest trailhead when a boulder he stepped on teetered. If you've ever climbed on rocks, as I think we all have, you know some rocks are, are a little bit loose. So the boulder teetered and instinctively he jumped to the next one, but he slid off. And the 800-pound rock he had just leaped from rumbled toward him, catching him between the boulders. The rock barely touched him. But when he tried to extricate himself, his legs wouldn't move. They weren't broken, barely even injured. But his feet were suspended in midair. He couldn't push them down. He couldn't pull them up. The two boulders had come together in the perfect configuration to form a pair of granite shackles. He's locked in. Through Turner's journal and physical evidence at the scene, it is clear he fought mightily to, mightily to free himself and to stay alive. He used his tripod to anything he could lay his hands on to try to force himself free. He melted, then drank the snow he could reach. He used his tense rain fly to collect dew and rainfall. He tied a water bottle to a rope and tried repeatedly to toss it to the nearby lake, but the bottle, too, caught between the rocks. And then, Turner's journal, carefully protected in a ziplock, Zip-top plastic bag slipped beyond his reach after about five days on the rocks. Desperate to maintain communication with his family, he began writing on the blank pages at the beginning and end of his Bible. When those filled, he wrote in the margins of the instruction sheet for his camp stove. And his suffering continued. Key word, suffering. And as it did, Turner's mood turned darker and despairing. God is with me, but I am angry with Him. What is the purpose of this ordeal? Will I ever know or continue to be puzzled, angered, and feel quite abandoned by the one I serve? More than a week passed. Turner's handwriting weakened. A mood of acceptance took over. And his final line, his final line, barely legible, reads with these words, I will trust in God, though He will slay me. Yet will I trust in Him. Hanging between heaven and earth, slowly dying, sounds like Calvary to me. We must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. But we have His promise. Lo, I am with you all the way to your very last breath.